All right. All right, that's enough fun. What's that? Yeah, give it to him. Right, right, right. Okay, uh, if you are one of the new members, come on up. Today is our new member Sunday where we recognize all of our new members joining the church. Yep, come on, Bill. That's right. Who else is here? Excellent. The ones that aren't here were here in the first service. Do you want a mic? Of course. Sure. I'm familiar with one of these. <laughs> if you look on the front of your bulletin, you will uh, see that uh, the names of all the ones joining the church. You know, the, the DNA of a church, of any church, is um, really comprised of its members. Those that, that are here regularly, make a commitment to be part of us, that sort of thing. Our church is 105 years old. I don't know if you know that. So we have a pretty deep conscience and a pretty strong DNA. Uh, for instance, we're very committed to being good community partners right out here. And, uh, and we work really hard at that. Our staff um, is very connected to the various agencies around the county and the city, the town of Dillon. So we work hard at that. And uh, so we are very excited anytime we're welcoming new members. And so let's have them introduce themselves. Very good. Okay, we uh, heard from you guys. Did you work out all the math on how many years you've been together? Okay, very good. And we also so, asked him which was her favorite pastor, right? Oh, yeah, so. but he, he answered correctly. It's a secret. That was his answer in the first service. Okay, Bill, tell us who you are. Bill Elch. Yep, and Jerry Elch. And how long have you guys been together? 36 years. How about that? So, that, yeah, that's worth applause. In the first bill, uh, in the first service, Bill was like over thirty years, which is a good man answer. That was good. All right, Murph, tell us who. Hi, I'm uh, Nathan Murphy. I'm one of the other friends, family doesn't matter. So uh, just say hi if you get a chance. I'd like to know any of you that I, I don't already. So. And you can call him Nathan or Nate or Murph or Murphy. Just yeah, exactly. Or a, or a few other names that we call him from time uh, to time. Yeah, he's got his choice names. And who are you guys? I'm Alex Kaisley. And Savannah Kaisley. That's correct. And who are these guys? This is Lenny Lenore. Emily. Emery. Emery. They're adorable. And how long have you guys been together? Uh, almost six years. Yeah, so you notice I gave it to her. <laughs> <laughs> I set you up to succeed in that by giving it to the default. Yeah, that's good. Well, very good. We would uh, welcome, first of all, we're really yeah. excited that you joined our church, and we'd like to pray for you. I'm going to invite all the elders, former elders, and staff to come on up. In a hurry. In a hurry. Come on up in a hurry. Run, run. Dead sprint. Yeah, Stefan, favorite <laughs> pastor, right. especially with that hair. That's just the best <laughs> hair. Mark, you want to pray for him? I would love to. Lord, we do uh, thank you for this group of people. Uh, they're wonderful. They offer themselves to you, and uh, they offer themselves to us. We know that the Bible doesn't talk about church membership per se, but there is a lot about membership with each other in the body of Christ, and that growing sense of unity and encouragement and working together, even things already in the early church, especially in the Corinthians Gospels and things where churches across the miles were blessing and encouraging each other in difficult times. And, and that's such a great model for us. So we've chosen to use this mechanism as a step in, a movement towards each other. And so in this 
place in which you've placed us, which is so beautiful and also has so many tricks and traps in it. We ask you that you would give these folks, as they come in as members, give them your spirit, give them a sense of understanding and wisdom to know how you have equipped them for this time in this place. And that may be different from what they did in a prior church somewhere else before they came here. But we ask that you would fill them up and fill all of us through them. And may we be amazed and encouraged to be a part of their journey and for them to be a part of ours. We, uh, are so grateful that you use us. I'm still astounded and amazed that you use us to do your kingdom work. That's awesome. So we all commit ourselves together here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give these guys a big hand. If you are interested in uh, finding out more about our church or joining it, our, uh, we have one more inquirers class this afternoon right after this service. We'll provide lunch. And um, our congregational meeting is August 27th, Sunday. This is the last inquirers class before that congregational meeting. And while we're talking about it, uh, the first Tuesday in August, our elder meetings are the first Tuesday of every month. And uh, the first Tuesday, August 3rd, is our um, next elder meeting, but that's traditionally the congregational Q&A time, so you can come and talk to the elders and ask your questions about things. This week, we already have listed, uh, posted on the website the bios of the four elders that have been nominated for you to vote on as members, and, um, and then this week we'll have posted the uh, proposed ministry plan for the next year, as well as the budget that we're proposing as well. And so download that sometime once you see it up there. Take a look at it. Right now it has last year's, so make sure you see the correction for the coming year and uh, find out. So if you're interested in joining church, we'd really love to have you come and be a part of it. So what do we have? <laughs> Hi. We, uh, DCC is... Does anybody in here not know who this lady is? I'm Jude. I'm sorry. Hi. I work here. Very nice to meet you all. This is my boss. <laughs> You, you say that in public. I appreciate that. I do. It's so nice. Uh, we're really excited to be presenting a marriage retreat. Uh, this is the number one marriage retreat in the state of Colorado. For It's a Christian marriage retreat. And we're super excited about bringing this to DCC. And that is for Saturday, August 12th. And we just wanted to kind of uh, get up here and, and cheerlead a little bit about it because it's such an important thing. And we've been, as a staff, working on looking at uh, real needs within the church. Uh, we, we have folks who need financial counseling. We, need, we all of us need marital help. We all of us need um, parenting help. And we need help in various stages and, and seasons of our life. And so I we're don't know. super... Let's... Let's see. Are there any marriages here that are perfect? Yeah, stand up if you have a perfect marriage. In the first service, my wife stood up. I was speechless. Smart man right there, smart man. I'll see you at the seminar, okay? (laughs) That's the chairman of our elders, by the way. (laughs) He is. He can hopefully take a joke, we hope. But we're just excited about this and really wanted to encourage you and to clarify some things. This, um, Dr. Wyatt Fisher is a, a Ph.D. in psychology. He's a devout Christian, and he's devoted his entire career to uh, marriage and to saving marriages, to helping people navigate marriages at any time of their marriage. 
And whether you're a newlywed or thinking about marriage or whether you've been married for for a zillion years like a lot of our folks have. But the, the statistics in marriage are the same within the church as outside the church as far as failed marriages. His whole uh, emphasis is on how to just um, really keep your marriage strong. And I just wanted to share a few of the, the points that they will be making during the, uh, the course of the seminar. Number one is God's covenant foundation of marriage. Number two is owning our brokenness. In other words, we're all broken. Might as well say it out loud. We might as well deal with it uh, within our marriages. Let's get some tools around it. Falling in love again. Developing emotional attachment. Cultivating sexual fireworks. So you wouldn't do that in the first service. How come you wouldn't do that in the first service? Because I'm in church. <laughs> and respecting our differences. And, and so these are, the, these are the kind of the topics that will be covered during the seminar. It's going to be a fun day. Uh, we're all going to be here together at the church. Pastor Jim will be here. I'll be here. I don't know if your wife knows that, but you might want to <laughs> mention that to her. Actually, she told me that we would be here. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and it'll be a great day together. There'll be plenty of time. It's going to be an all-day seminar. There'll be plenty of time to break off into to, uh, your, just the couple, off to discuss certain things. You'll have time for a hike and to go out to lunch or do whatever you want to do. But it's an all-day seminar that we can really focus on our marriages. And so we really encourage you all to, to join us in this um, as a church and as, as a gift to your marriage and to your children and to, to each other. So you can go on to our website and, and sign up, and we just encourage you to do that. Okay? Thank you. You know, Jude, I don't have uh, I don't have problems saying those kinds of things. I don't have I don't have the same filters as you, but I wasn't raised Catholic, so that may. Sorry, I'll apologize again. I always do. She always apologizes. She walks into Mark and I were talking the other day, and she walked in and apologized for interrupting. And Mark said, "Why do you always apologize? You don't have to apologize." I said, "Mark, she was raised Catholic. Don't tell her that. Just give her absolution. It's okay." (laughs) All right. A couple of other things on the back here. Um, uh, one more thing in particular, actually, that today is the last day to register for Faith Day. If you've not been to Faith Day at the Rockies, it is a blast. It's coming up on August sometime or other, but today's the last day to register. August 26th or something like that. 16th? 6th. Yeah, sometime in August. <laughs> That's why I have a staff. <laughs> They tell me what to do each week. <laughs> so it's a great time. And especially this year with the Rockies doing so well. This is a record-setting year. Uh, it's just phenomenal. So there's usually about 100 of us from our congregation that go. And the stadium is full of faith groups. And uh, it's just a blast. And we all sit down, start the game, and then we start flopping seats and changing seats so we get to know each other. And we have so much fun. So let me encourage you to really consider going. There's a few tickets left, and you can uh, sign up for those out there on the Welcome Center. Okay. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that you you grew up here, spent a long number of years, maybe uh, spent most of your career up here, and then you decide to retire. So you move away. And you've been gone for 10, 20 years, and you decide to come back. Uh, you want to come back, and you want to connect with the church, and, and the doors are locked. Dust on everything, cobwebs everything. 
there is no Dillon Community Church. It doesn't exist anymore. How would you feel? What would that make you think? Your church that you poured a portion of your finances, your heart, your soul, your prayers, your blood into your work, and it doesn't exist anymore. I think one of the questions every church should ask regularly is, if we cease to exist, the neighbors across the street, would they be happy? Would they be sad? Or would they even notice? How would you feel? What makes a church a church? What makes DCC the type of church that would make you sad? Maybe it makes you happy. What type of church made you that way? You ever think about that? What makes a church a church? We're going to stop and pray in just a moment. Um, Some of you know Sam Hall, um, senior here, and his mom, Kathy. He's actually in the hospital right now. Uh, Went in last night. He's okay. I've been texting with Kathy all morning. And uh, something to do with his diabetes. And so he, uh, they rushed to the emergency room last night. And some of you have had the benefit, the privilege of us praying for you from up front. Some of you have had the privilege of just being on our prayer chain where we have faithful people that pray. Elders, other people. Some of you have had the privilege of calling us and we come running. Anywhere from two or three elders to all of them to pray over at your house, your home. Does that... Is that one of the things that makes us wonderful? What do you think? Is it our commitment to pray? Let's stop and pray. Father, we first of all are grateful to be here today to worship you freely. Thank you for that privilege. Father, we do lift up Sam to you. Lord, um, we have a couple things that we're asking for. One is that you would use this in the life of him and his mom to uh, teach them something about you. Reveal yourself to them in a very new and fresh way. Strengthen their faith through this. Lord, um, at the same time, show them your grace and your mercy. Come alongside them. Help us as a church to love them well. And Father, when it comes to the physical part, which I don't understand, we just ask that you would take care of the problem, whatever it is. Thank you that he's stable, that you would take care of it. And Father, there's so many other things we could pray for. Uh, I think about the news this morning out of San Antonio and the, the people that are trying to sn- smuggle into our country that died. Lord, I remain very concerned for the peoples around our world. Everywhere I travel, I see them that that don't know you and don't know what life could be like. God, I just pray that you would continue to help us as a country to be merciful. And Father, I pray for our government. Seems to be so much tension right now. We're not very good at resolving conflict. It doesn't matter what side you're on. We're not very good at it. Help us, Lord. I pray that your spirit would just do his quiet but powerful ministry in the lives of our leaders. 
somehow help them come together because we desire that as a people. We desire unity and peace. Help them, Lord. And Father, I pray that as we jump into Revelation today that you would honor us. We already know your spirit is here present with us. I pray that he would teach us new things because of our time in your word. In your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So it's, it's, uh, it's no easy thing to keep a church vital, alive, thriving. That's not an easy task. It's something that our elders put a lot of energy and prayer into, a lot of discussion. We don't take it for granted that it's going to happen. We know that we're always a very short distance away from uh, fragmenting, fracturing, arguing, all of that. Um, and we welcome discussion and debate. I've told the elders more than once, uh, it's okay to debate. It's okay to have conflict. It's okay to disagree. Uh, it's even okay to draw blood. As long as at the end of the day, we all go out for a beer or coffee together. Unity is paramount to us. And we work really hard at watching and feeling the pulse of our congregation and our people. Unity is hard. We're doing a series right now on victory. And I talked last week quite a bit about the background to this word, um, the verb. I don't usually give you the Greek words, not trying to impress you, but you will relate to it. The verb is nikao, and the noun uh, for victory is nike. So I asked last week, and then the first server, I asked, what does that remind you of? And something the first server said, tennis shoes. Perfect, Nike. You see, Nike, nike, was the, uh, one of the ancient goddesses in the classical Greek era, which moved into the Roman period. And so it was the goddess of victory, victory. And we see that, that, that concept of victory occurring in three major areas, areas of, uh, of military strategy, in the areas of athletics, and in the area of lawsuits. And the basic premise was very simple. Our God is stronger than your God, and so we're going to be victorious. If we lose, we know that your God is stronger than our God. That's why the Israelites struggled throughout this entire Old Testament period, because they kept losing. So if you read the book of Judges, for example, nation after nation after nation would come in and take them control of them, defeat them. And after a while of being under slave enslavement, they would cry out, God would raise up a judge. Well, that's the story of all the kings. And they kept losing. And so they kept adopting the other gods and became very syncretistic into their pantheon because they didn't quite trust the one true God because if he was as strong as he says he would, then they would win. And so the concept of victory was really distorted and the New Testament begins to correct that thinking. They never thought, maybe this God who proclaims to be the one true living God, maybe he's actually letting us lose on purpose so that we might learn something. I've said several times that, that one of the things we need is a theology of suffering. You need to know that your suffering is really, it's not only about you. It is. It is a test of your faith and it's designed to strengthen your faith, but it's far bigger than that. Far bigger than that. You see, the universe doesn't resolve, revolve around any one of you. Your suffering 
is to bring glory to the Lord, and it's the one language the world understands. They get it. You don't have to convince them of suffering. They live that regularly. And so the fact that you suffer is, means you're, just, you're speaking their language, but how you respond is what differentiates you. That's where the new covenant comes in, how you respond. That is what is important in this discussion. So we looked at all that last week. We looked at Paul's use of the word. And the reason why we're focusing on Revelation is because there's 24 occurrences of this word. 17 of them are in Revelation. Revelation is the book that develops the concept of victory. Now, when you look at the websites today on victory, it's good. This is not a critical comment. It's a positive one because it's appropriate. But it's often oriented more towards the individual. We as Americans are so good at that. Of what do I need to do to experience victory in Jesus? So what I'm going to do as we look in Revelation is try to convince you that this is first and foremost a church concept. It's a concept that belongs to all of us together. And that's consistent all the way through the book. So we're going to look in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to talk about uh, the letter, the first letter. There's seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But these are actually written to all churches for all time, and I'll show you why in just a moment. So he starts off with, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. But let me back up two verses. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So this is not only about what's happening in their time, but we're being brought into it with this language. This is related to us as well. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. This is Jesus speaking. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are described as the churches. That makes sense. How many times have we said that, uh, that we are the ones that reveal the kingdom and God's glory to a broken world? They have no place else to look to figure it out. There's no, there's no billboard out there with, you know, flashing lights about God's kingdom. It's us. We are God's billboard, the church. And so they look to us. And the lampstand is an image that we're the ones that provide light or clarity for the world in darkness. They should look and see the bright lights of the churches and say, wow, I, 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 I want what they have. I want to belong to that group. Okay? Jesus used that imagery. I'm not hiding your light under a bushel. So here we are. We're described as lampstands. Now back to the letter to Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words of Jesus. But notice the very first thing we, we learn here is that he is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among the church. Do you realize that he is present with us right now? Do you realize that? I'm not quite sure where he is in the room. In fact, do you realize that when you decide to sin, he's right there, standing right next to you watching? You ever visualize that? You ever think about that? That's the reality of it. When you decide to take that shortcut at work, he's standing right there. A long time ago, I was told, asked by one of my bosses to, uh, on my expense statement, he and I had gone on a trip together to fudge a couple of my entries that would justify what he was going to put on his expense account. I said, okay, I'll do that for you. But I have a question first. I want to make sure you're comfortable with the question before I do it. 
If I lie for you, how will you know when I'm lying to you? And he said, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry that I asked. Let's don't do that. Let's do it the right way. I said, you want confidence in me, right? And he said, absolutely. I said, I never lied to you. He's there. He's standing right there. When you decide to look at things you shouldn't look at, when you decide to have conversations or relationships you shouldn't have, whatever it is that you do, when you decide to argue and complain, when you decide to cause strife, when you decide to be greedy, you fill in the blank. It's up to you. He's standing right there watching it. So here he's pictured as walking among the seven golden lampstands. Here's what he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What a good church. I hope these words are applied to our church. Then you have verse 4, but... But, and this is where it gets our attention. This is where it gets dicey, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus before I read what he's upset about. Ephesus was a commercial, it was a major commercial and religious center. It was the most significant city in Western Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. So it's over on the western side. Had a population at this time of about 250,000 people, so it's a very large city in the ancient world. It was the home of the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You can read a lot about that, this temple. There's a lot of archaeology done and a lot of writings of the time period. There were two additional temples there built to Emperor Augustus to worship him because the emperors were considered the human manifestation of the deities. Uh, By this time, the Christian faith had existed in Ephesus for over four decades at the time this letter was written. So this is a pretty established church. I mean, it's over 40 years. Our church has been here 105 years. Uh, We have a pretty established history as well. So did they. According to Acts 18 and 19, Paul went there and lived there for two years, and that became the center of many of his missionary endeavors in the area. He stayed there for two years and taught. So this is a very important city. Um, we know that 1 Timothy, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John were written to the Christians in this area. As best we can tell, they're all focused on Ephesus. This is a major city. That's how important it was. Now, we know from 1st Timothy and other, the other books that the church in Ephesus was probably a, a church that was, that was in um, decline. And by that, I mean not numerical growth and not popularity, but they were beginning to experience fragmentation. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 says that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus specifically to deal with false teaching and false teachers. That's what 1 Timothy is about. We often get uh, caught up on the passages on leadership and women, but the book is actually written to deal with heresy, false teaching. That's what it's uh, doing because that's beginning to spring up in this, in this church. Um, it, was a, it was a church that had... Uh, Issues around loving each other. You see that language in, in um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They were divided. Uh, some of them were even splintering off and starting their own groups because they weren't happy with the way things were going. Now, I started with the question of, uh, what do you like about our church? What makes it our church? Uh, is it easy for you to do that? To get angry, frustrated, and start fracturing, causing dissent, all of that? 
That's what was going on. For several centuries, it held a position of preeminence. In fact, one of the great church councils was held in Ephesus in A.D. 431. A.D. 431. Today, there is no church in Ephesus. It's no longer called Ephesus. It's now in Turkey. It had, the city has a different name. Um, but there's no church, no active church presence there. We are always one step away, one step away. Now listen to what Jesus says. I hold this against you, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Think about how prominent love plays in the message of Christianity. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, not by your programs, not by your church building, not by the amphitheater, as much as I love it, not by your growth, by this, your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Or he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. No, I just read that one. (laughs) You summed up the law in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have to do both. You can't do one. If you only do one, you're a, you're a hypocrite. It's not true. First John argues if you say you love God and you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. You can only do both. You can do none or both, but you can't do one. Love plays a very, very dominant role in Christianity. So his complaint against this particular church is you have forsaken the love you had at first. It's so quick to lose that love. So fast. It's so subtle, we don't even know it's happening. Paul says, put one another as more important than yourselves. And the moment we start chirping and complaining and doing all of that stuff, love just slips right out the window. I don't care what you look like. I don't have to look in your mirror. I only look in one mirror, and that's a hard enough mirror to look into, and that's my own. So you could use all the right language. It's easy to do. But maybe down inside you're harboring prejudice, resentment, animosity, hostility. I don't know. That's for you to figure out with the Holy Spirit. Are you authentic in your faith? Love is not something you talk about. Love is something that we do as a church. We love each other. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You will cease to be a church. Over the years, you know, I teach in seminary and university settings. I've had students and people in the church tell me, yeah, but this church belongs to Jesus. He'll never let this church die. Oh, really? Tell that to the church in Europe. He'll let this church go that fast. You see, he doesn't need our church. So it's a real honor and a blessing that he decides to use us. But it's not without cost. It's not without cost. We really are that close to having our lampstand removed. Do you think the Ephesians ever thought their church would disappear? It lasted 500 years. It's not there now. Do you ever thought they had, you think they had that thought? 
No, because when, when heinous things begin to slip in and love oozes out and goes somewhere else, we get accustomed to it. It's really that easy. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You, have the practice, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We have no idea who the Nicolaitans are. Outside of two references in Revelation, we have no record of them. We don't know who they are. But it's really interesting because their word relates to victory because it's a combination of the word Nikkei, victory, and Laos, people. These are people who love victory. <laughs> so it kind of really fits really well in this text. I don't know who they are. But I know that they don't have love as the core or he wouldn't be using them as an example of who he hates. That's what I do know. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the first thing he says is, let the one, let the, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a church discussion. When I say the word tree of life, we get the right to eat from it. What do you think of with the tree of life? Now, it's very easy to go back to the garden and say we're talking about eternal life, right? That's the easy thing to do. Go back to the tree of life. But it's so much bigger than that. You see, the tree of life is actually very metaphorical for the community of faith. Proverbs 3, verse 18. In verse 13, he says, Blessed are those who find wisdom. In verse 18, she, this wisdom, is a tree of life to take, take hold of her. The tree of life, which we are to engage in and enjoy the fruit of, is wisdom. Wisdom is always found and expressed in relationships, in community, in the Bible, always. Now, as good Americans, we tend to think of something we get individually. That's not the way they, the ancients thought of it. It's something that we find and express right here. Or if you move over to Proverbs 11, verse 30, he adds another. We're going to look at four verses in Proverbs, actually. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The fruit of the righteous. Righteous is a technical term. Do you know what it has to do with? God's righteousness, the word for righteousness is the same Greek root as the word for justice. So whenever you hear the word righteousness, think about justice. God is just in all that he does. And so the fruit of righteousness or justice is a way, is part of the tree of life. In other words, we do what's right. We develop a healthy church and we do what's right. And we stay focused on our true priorities, doing what's right. Or if you go over to chapter 13, verse 12. You've heard the first part of this verse. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. A longing fulfilled. You see, God created us with longings. And when those longings are fulfilled, and that's his pleasure to do that, that's part of this tree of life. And that longing, those longings, when you start searching that out, are fulfilled in community. They're not fulfilled up on the mountaintop. That's not where they're fulfilled. And one more, chapter 15. I love this one. The soothing tongue is a way of life. Is a tree of life, excuse me. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. 
Those are four passages out of Proverbs. We could look at more. I want you to get the idea that the tree of life, it's not only future. It's something that we engage in as a church. This is what makes us healthy, and this is what creates deep relationships, and this is what creates deep impact within our own culture. Does that make sense? Do you want to lose that? I don't want to. That's the reward for faithfulness. That's the reward for faithfulness. Okay, let me add one more dimension and I'll finish with this. Let me tell you a little bit more about the temple of Artemis. Within its grounds, the great temple was in Ephesus, by the way. They had little temples here and there, but the great one in the Roman Empire was in Ephesus. Within its grounds, uh, in fact, one of, the, uh, one of the emperors said that Ephesus was the guardian of the imperial cult because they protected one of the major goddesses. Within the grounds of the temple of Artemis was a beautiful garden in which one of the trees was used only as a sacred sh- a shrine. This is common, and if you come with me to Nepal or to uh, India or any of those places, you'll see that trees are set up as shrines. So they had a particular tree in this garden that was set up as a shrine. Its central purpose was a place of asylum. Now think carefully with me about asylum. That's a, that's a big topic, big controversy in our country right now, okay? It was set up as a place of asylum. Some things are not, what did, Sol, uh, what did Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> they were dealing with asylum back then as well. Criminals who came within a certain distance of this tree would be free from capture and punishment. So if you committed a crime, if you got within a certain distance of the tree, you were free. You were granted asylum without repentance. No wonder that the letter of Ephesus closes with a reference to the tree of life. Because the Bible begins and ends with a reference to the tree of life, doesn't it? That's part of our theology. And by the way, we're not the only religion. The ancient world had the tree of life. Every religion discussed the tree of life, but ours is different. It's in a beautiful garden. That's similar. It's a tree of life. That's similar. But it is no refuge for unrepentant people. That's where we differ. You can't just come to the tree of life in an unrepentant way and expect to be granted asylum. I'm asking you to think like theologians here. This might inform our own, own dissension that we're having as a country. What did he say before this? Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Repent. So the God's tree of life, in contrast to all the other trees of life that existed in the ancient philosophies, it's a place where all can come and they can find two things, true repentance and victory. In order for true repentance to occur, it has to be a safe place. It has to be a safe place. Our goal is not to be a church where people can come and not repent. That's never been a goal. But it is a goal to be a safe place where people can come and say, I'm struggling with sin. And part of the journey, the refreshing part of the journey is to stop and say, God, I'm wrong about this sin and I'm sorry. That's what cleanses the spirit, John says. Is that repentance? I want you to think about that because in just a moment I'm going to give you the chance to experience that. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your wonderful words to us. Lord, um, I pray that you would continue to walk with us on this journey as we look at victory. But thank you that you have given us the gift, the very great gift of true repentance and the automatic forgiveness that's yours to give us, your love, your compassion, your gentleness. But thank you that you've given us a way to cleanse, cleanse the, the sin that builds up, the darkness that builds up in our souls. Thank you for that. And help us to do it well with each other. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And ask the usher.